online programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now inside the Cavanagh Pharmacy Building. The Cavanagh Pharmacy Building, which comprises of some 5,600 square metres of teaching and research laboratories, lecture theatres and seminar rooms, was opened in 2006. The building was aided with the grateful philanthropic support of Atlantic Philosophies and Dr. Tom and Marie Cavanagh, after whom the building is named. The building provides facilities for both undergraduate and postgraduate students of UCC's School of Pharmacy, but also for other disciplines, including UCC creative writing students. The building houses a display of many of the pharmaceutical instruments of the early to mid 20th century and casts a fine nod to our history housed within this modern dynamic building. Mary, um, thank you so much for coming to the Cavanagh building and reading for us here. Um, it's been very exciting to have a world premiere for Fiction at the Friary again because you read from um, your new novel, which is still in draft form, and um, we can talk about that maybe later. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us now why you chose um, the Cavanagh building as your location for this little bit of radio recording. Okay, well I chose it because it's a building that I've been teaching in for the last five years and because of pressure of space, creative writing classes are often sent to far-flung parts of the campus and this was a part of the campus that under normal circumstances I probably would never have set foot in. And we have this great seminar room in the basement in the bowels of the, biz of the building and um, it's an unremarkable room in lots of ways, except that it has a window in it. And every so often a light comes on in the window, and inside in the room, which has this extraordinary lime green floor, and has a very, very sharp, very strong lighting, and, you know, if there are any scientists or pharmacists listening to this, I now apologise for the completely unscientific way I'm going to describe it. It has a big glass machine in it with holes where you put your hands in. And we've seen those pharmacists fiddle with things inside in the glass case. It's like an incubator, I suppose. And they wear hazmat suits and they wear little pampooties on their feet. And it is like looking into another universe. And because you never know when the light is going to come on, it's in darkness a lot of the time. We're presuming it's a two-way mirror, so they can look at us in there scribbling away, as we do. And obviously we can look at them. And I suppose if I were more intellectually curious, I would find out what the room is for and what they're doing in there. But in fact, I like the fact that I don't know and I always ask the students because the light only comes on spasmodically and you've no way of knowing when the light is going to come on um, I always ask the students just to drop all and to write something about the room as long as the light lasts and it seems to me that it's kind of the perfect 
um, allegory for the imaginative mind that most of the time we're living in this, you know, fairly, you know, obscure and unremarkable room, place, our lives, the world, whatever, you know, allegory you want to put in it. And then every so often a light comes on and this other place is revealed to you. Um, so, I, you know, um, it was the choice of the room was purely arbitrary, but in fact it has turned out to be a perfect room to, to kind of demonstrate what, what we're all doing as writers. You know, not so much that we're waiting for the muse, because I don't believe in all of that old crap about the muse, but you know that we all know that moment every so often you're writing and it's very dull and it's very grand and then suddenly a light does come on, something gets illuminated and you think, oh, it isn't on all of the time, which is why you have to sit down and be grounded and dull a lot of the time to get that moment of illumination. So uh, I'm very fond of the room for that reason. And I'm also fond of it because I've spent five years teaching in it, teaching undergraduates, and they're always very un, um, unexpected things happen in undergraduate classes because I think undergraduates often have less invested in writing and they're more into just taking a punt. And the other thing is that they never ask why, you know, then I say, now I want you to write about X, Y, and Z, and off they go, they're very obedient, you know. So nobody ever says, well, why are we, why are we writing about the, the green room, you know? So it's a mixture of the allegory of the room, what it represents in terms of the life of the imagination, and also just a kind of sentimental association with a lot of nice times in the room. I'm very impressed that you say that your students are obedient because I was one of your students once and I don't remember any of us being obedient at all. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Because <laughs> but I think that um, maybe that's the difference. You were a master's student and I think there's a different relationship with master students and writing because it is often a, quite a vocational choice. You know, so a master student, I think sometimes, you know, they're more vocationally driven and motivated and therefore I think more likely to question, why am I doing this? What is the point of it? Whereas I think undergraduates just a bit more biddable. I was very obedient, Mary. I was only joking. <laughs> that was a beautiful description of um, the life of a writer where you have to sit and do the work and plod along a lot of the time and suddenly the little light comes on and um, there you are for a brief joyous moment before you start plodding again, I suppose. How do you find that the energy required in teaching creative writing impacts on your own writing? Is it a help or a hindrance to be trying to, I suppose, prompt and inspire and develop the creativity of other people? Um, it is both a help and a hindrance. Um, it's a help in the sense that you're surrounded by writing all of the time, you know, because you're 
you're working with young writers and not so young writers, new writers, and um, I'm a person who doesn't have that many ideas, so it's wonderful to be in a whole room of writers that have, you know, all of that energy, all of those ideas coming at you. I mean, the, the thing you have to be uh, beware of is like stealing some of them. You think, oh, I wish I had thought of that. Um, but it does take a lot of your own energy in the same teaching, creative writing. It requires the same energy as writing itself. And, you know, you're reading a lot of work and you're not just reading it, you have to kind of you have to evaluate it and all that terrible grading, but also, you know, how do you make it better? So that kind of creative editing of work, I think, is the same. It's the same energy as you would use in your own work if you were editing it. Um, so yes, it's a bit of a struggle, and often, if I, during the teaching term, I get very little of my own writing done. It's easier in a way to say, okay, this is dead time as regards writing, it's, you know, when the work will just simmer away without you, than to try and combine the two, because if my experience is if you combine the two, that you start to resent the teaching, and a resentful teacher is not a good teacher. Mary, you're from Dublin originally, from the big smoke. Guilty. Um, <laughs> Can you tell me uh, about your relationship with Cork and with UCC? When did you originally come to Cork? I came to Cork originally in the year 2000. I was writer in residence here, and at the time I was uh, I was working with the Irish Times. I'm trained as a journalist, so that's my background. And I got a leave of absence from. Uh, the Irish Times and I came and I lived in Cork because I was under the impression that if you were in residence, if you were a writer in residence, you should be in residence and I was really keen to come to Cork, I've always liked Cork and um, I've really been in Cork ever since, although it's funny, people have this idea that I'm really, I'm only here part time or that I live in Dublin and I sort of come down and I'm always interested in that, that they have that impression that I'm only sort of perched here, you know. Um, and, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, I did spend a lot of time away from Cork because I was teaching in the States, so I would come and go. Um, and I did in that sort of almost 20 years, I spent a couple of years back in Dublin when my mother was ill and I was taking care of her. But um, essentially, I have been here since the year 2000. Um, and then, you know, my romantic life took an unexpected turn as well, which is the other reason I went back. Oh, that's always nice to know. It's always nice to think of people being lured to Cork by the tug of the heart. Um, are there any places on campus that you go to do a bit of writing, or do you prefer to take your writing away a little distance from the college? I've never written on campus at all. I tend to kind of compartmentalize my life, that if I'm here on campus, I'm, I'm working. And, um, you know, I, I associate writing with 
with home and I've never actually been one of those writers who sits in cafes. You know, if I sat in a cafe, I'd be, I'd be watching people, I'd be curious, I'd be eavesdropping. I mean, I suppose that might all go into the writing. But um, it's not that I need silence or anything. In fact, I quite like the idea of writing with the noises of life going on around you because I think it makes me feel less like a kind of a monster sitting in the room all on my own creating this you know world that you're not even sure will anybody want to read this so it kind of reassures me to hear life going on around like recently a young family moved into the house next door and you can hear the kids in the garden and I just find it Kind of reassuring. I feel, oh, I'm still in touch with the, with the real world. Um, I don't feel quite as isolated somehow, you know. And I often have to put the radio on before I start working in order to kind of reassure me that I'm still in touch with the world. And then when I get stuck in, I usually turn it off. So, um, but I've never written on campus. I've always kept the two worlds kind of separate. So I'm going to read from an extract from a work in progress, which is a novel um, about Nora Barnacle, but not Nora Barnacle as we know her. Uh, it's a kind of a speculative novel, um, imagining a life for Nora Barnacle if she hadn't stayed with James Joyce. It's um, entitled provisionally uh, Nora with a H. Mrs. Smith, June 14, 1915. Mrs. Smith? Scrawn thin Gertie Deveni's voice knifes its way from the front hall into the well of the shaded stairs, up three flights to where Mrs. Smith is standing at the tall windows of the balcone, as the back landings and fins are always called. Below, the playing fields of Trinity. The distant cricketers, like wind-up soldiers, canter over and back, in this heat, to little outbursts of ragged applause from the spectators, from here tiny as children. George is among them. She lifts the window and leans out. It is so blasted hot that what she'd like to do is to wrench open her high-necked blouse, loosen her stays, let her hair down and put her feet up. But she doesn't. No. She remains stalled. Gertie's like a baba woken from a nap who wants to be picked up immediately, but if you left her for a bit, well, she might nod off again. She stealthily slides the window closed and goes back to dusting the decorative urns perched on flower stands that guard the guest lounge. Three curlicued chairs crouched around a low table. Mrs. Smith! She holds her breath and counts to ten if that will do any blessed good. Gertie will pursue her now that the solemn peace, like a siesta, the word makes her smile secretly, has been disturbed. It is three o'clock on a hot, windless afternoon. The panes of the bow window in front of her divide the view into high blue sky and green coiny leaves, nine portions of summer. 
The dusting is not her job, of course, it's Gertie's, but Mrs. Smith has never lost the habit of stowing about her person a spare chamois, where once she might have folded a handkerchief and perfumed if she could manage it, so she can chase the fine city dust that settles on everything when the front door is thrown open, as it is now, to cool the blessed place down. Gertie hasn't called again, and she wonders if her trick of waiting has worked. But it's no good. The piece has been shattered now, like the breaking of a vase, where the pieces just lie there rebuking you with their ruin. She makes her way to the head of the stairs and almost collides with Gertie, who, having taken the stairs two at a time, has come to a sudden halt in mid-gallop, hair escaping from her mob cap and her breath coming out in oniony gaffs. What did the child have for lunch? Oh, Mrs. Smith, softer now, surprised by her stillness. Beg your pardon, ma'am. What is it, Gertie? Cross to be interrupted from her reverie. That's what Hector used to call it. He liked to use such words, being able to switch from one lingo to another in midstream, not unlike the other fella. There's a gentleman, Gertie begins, but almost out of puff, she stops there. Isn't there always? A gentleman who's lost his key, a gentleman who wants his shoes polished, or wants an early call, or would like the kitchen to rustle something up for him after hours because he's come in from the alehouse three sheets to the wind and has a mind for a sandwich, white bread, if you please, and ham, and a dollop of mustard, if you have it, to line the bag. And isn't it a bit late for that after sculling pints of porter in the tavern? Yes, Gertie, and it comes out snappish, and Mrs. Smith realises it's the mythical gentleman she's irritated with. There's a gentleman, Gertie repeats. Yes, you said that. Now it's Gertie she's irritated with. What about him? There's a gentleman at the desk, Gertie manages to get out, and Mrs. Smith thinks, Lord God, we'll be here till kingdom come if she has to go back to the beginning every time she adds a new bit to the story. Yes, and... And he wants to see the maid's quarters. Well, now, that's a new one. There was once in the past, long before Gertie's time, a gentleman, if you could call him that, who was found on, in the maid's quarters, that is, with a girl from Leitrim who was trying to fend him off while her two companions jittered and screamed, all of a dither at the impropriety of it all. But that was in the wee small hours, not in broad daylight. And the girl in question, Martha, Martha, Martha what? Cohen, Cavendish, Clifford? Began with a C anyway. So many have passed here through the years that it's hard to keep track. This Martha had been an own chuck, she remembers that much, who had invited the said gent upstairs to show him where she slept. She said, I ask your holy pardon. To show him what? The crown jewels. That's what he thought anyway, and sure aren't they all after the one thing. But no, this is something else. This gent is looking for permission. There's no one up in the maid's quarters at the moment. Mrs. Smith knows that. She keeps track, two on duty and two on their afternoon off. And on a fine sunny day like this, they won't be stretched on their beds up there. So what exactly would a gentleman be doing? Is he some class of inspector? And did he say why he wanted to see the maid's rooms, she asks. Suddenly, maybe because she's caught her breath, Gertie turns eloquent. Oh yes, missus, he says he used to know a maid here long ago. Stepped out with her, I believe, and he wants to see it for old time's sake. She parrots word for word, it sounds like. Dirty pervert. And what would he be doing if he got in there? Sniffing the sheets, is it? And where is the gentleman now? 
I left him below, Mrs. where he belongs. Very well, Gertie, you go on down and tell him I will be with him presently. The girl turns away, then back again. Oh, and Mrs. Gertie says, he's a foreign gentleman. Mrs. Smith feels a heart lurch. Could it be him, Hector, here? Foreign, you say? But then what would Hector be doing here, looking for the maid's quarters? Wouldn't he just ask for her direct, if he ever asked for anything direct, unlike the other fellow who was never behind the door when it came to asking? Pass master at it, the handout. If it were Hector, but no, it can't be. Gertie, relieved to be able to offer an extra morsel, says, he said he had come from Italy. Italy? Stop it now, stop with your nonsense. Gertie, fix yourself up there, Mrs. Smith says, pointing to the girl's mob cap perched on her flaming hair like a mushroom and then to her apron. Gertie scurries down the first flight, intent on her mission, muttering to herself the message she's been given so she won't forget it. Mrs. Smith will be with you presently. She pauses in front of the mirror on the second landing, tries to calm her frizz, tugs at her bodice and apron to get them straight, but sure she's crooked herself, one eye smaller than the other, one leg shorter. She recalls the gossip in the maid's room that once, oh years ago now, Mrs. Smith was a chambermaid here, before she was married out foreign, or was it in England, and made a widow. She must have been fierce young when she was made a widow, the other girls said, as if they doubted the story. They counted up on their fingers. But the story was that's how she came to be chief cook and bottle washer at Finn's, so young, because she was left a small fortune when her husband died. Could he be the gent down below? Oh, Gertie, what kind of an idiot are you? If Mrs. Smith's a widow, sure Mr. Smith has to be dead, unless the man in the hall is a ghost. But he looked real enough his straw hat and his white suit and spectacles flashing in the sun that made his eyes blind. A floor above, Mrs. Smith is peering into the glass and remembering those evenings in the maids' rooms, the cramped and lonely boredom of girls cooped up together and keyed up with love and the promise of it, pawing letters and sighing or turning their faces to the wall for tears. She's barely stepped inside those rooms since she was a maid herself. So why would a stranger want to see them? No good reason. She will go down now directly, give him a flea in his ear and send him packing. But the memories of those times hold her, there on the landing, there in the ticking afternoon, and transport her to the time when she was like Gertie Deveni. Never as innocent, mind you, or as useless. The cut of her, what ails her? Is it love? Could anyone love Gertie Deveni? Now, Nora, she chastises herself, don't mock the afflicted as she thinks of Gertie's lame leg. Or is she homesick? Is that it? She pining for her mammy, thrown out of the nest too soon. What is she, 16? When Nora was that age, she couldn't wait to be shut of them all. Mamo, Uncle Tommy with his wagging finger. No, she did not miss any of them. Well, maybe Pappy, poor, banished Pappy. She had fled them half a lifetime ago without saying goodbye, and she hasn't darkened their door since. They have no idea where she is, not even that she's in the country, and she's going to keep it that way. But she wouldn't half mind boasting to Uncle Tommy, who used to say to her she'd end up on the street the way she was behaving. 
the wildness in her then. He couldn't be dealing with it. End of his tether, he said, spittle flying and reaching for his stick. And she wasn't having any more of it, being punished for what came natural. Uncle Tommy with no chick or child of his own, who knew nothing about girls but how to beat them. She firms her own hair, remembering Gertie's disarray and fixing herself with the glare that sends the likes of Gertie dipping her knee and scurrying off fearful. Oh yes, she has sharpened it over the years, whittled it into a weapon. How else could she command respect with all the tittle-tattle that she was only where she was because she came into money? And it's why, when she halts on the landing, she does so deliberately not to savour the proprietorial quietude, broken now, but to keep the gentleman waiting. For Mrs Smith has spent too much of her life waiting on instructions, on tables, on men, that now, as a matter of course, she does it unto others. Let him wait, she thinks, whoever the hell he is. John O'Donnell reads Away Game from his collection, Almost the Same Blue. Hi, everybody. And firstly, uh, thank you to Madeline and Danielle and to all at Fiction at the Friary and to the Friary for the, the loan of the bar. And uh, thank you to Madeline and Danielle for um, inviting me to be aboard. Uh, it's a great honour and a privilege and a delight. So I'm going to read from the collection, Almost the Same, uh, almost the same Blue, and this is a story called Away Game. The fitting was one of those shower bath affairs. He pulled the plunger up to the shower setting, but it kept slipping back. He tried to jam it in position with one of the little bottles of shampoo the hotel provided. The water briefly sprinkled his hair before cascading once more over his feet. He jerked the plunger up again and held it there, he almost had to crouch to keep it in place. This wasn't going to work, he thought. Maybe he should have a bath instead. He put the plug in and let the plunger down, and as he did, he heard her call his name. The bath was filling quickly. He reached down to swirl the water. It was silky, warm. When had he last had a bath? He couldn't actually remember. As he lowered himself, she called his name again, more urgent this time. Hello! He leaned back against the enamel. The bath's dimensions did not allow him to stretch out full length. Over the sound of the flowing water, he could hear the TV in the bedroom being turned up loud. I'm in the bath, he said. You might want to see this, she replied. He sighed and turned off the taps. Hauling himself out of the tub, he reached for one of the bathrobes, pausing to consider his reflection before opening the door. The TV was blaring. The sound of it filled the room. Maggie was sitting on the bed, the room service menu she'd been flicking through open beside her. This is awful, she said. So awful. He stared at the TV. The man with the microphone had his back to the terminal. A ribbon of red text ran along the bottom of the screen. Irish plane crash lands in Heathrow. 
Paul could hear the whine of sirens as emergency vehicles streamed away. The reporter was struggling to make himself heard. Flight EI-166 was filled with Irish fans, he said, all travelling for this evening's playoff. But in light of this, and here he turned to gesture towards the runway, already it's been suggested that the game should not be played. The remote. Where was the remote? He scanned the room, the crumpled bedsheets, the tiny bedside lockers, the dresser where Maggie had laid out her makeup, hairbrush, perfume. Can we turn this down? He said. Okay, okay, said Maggie. She began rummaging between the sheets. The remote was under the room service menu. Here, she said, pushing the control over to the side where earlier he lame. She looked up at him then and patted the empty space beside her. He muted the sound. The screen was showing a diagram of the aircraft with a circle around the wheels of the landing gear and an arrow towards the fuel lines. Equipment failure, said the ticker tape below. It was definitely the same flight. He printed out the details, sticking them underneath the fridge magnet in the kitchen so Jane could see them. In the hallway of their home, when he'd kissed Jane and the two boys goodbye and told them that he'd see them all tomorrow, he'd been wearing the green and white supporter scarf, the scarf now stuffed inside the coat he'd thrown on the chair in this room when they'd arrived. Maggie shifted slightly to her right. You want to sit down, she said. He squeezed past the dressing table and perched on the edge of the opposite side of the bed, facing away from her. The remote was still in his hand. He dabbed the volume button once, twice, and the sound came back, the voices in the studio now a murmur. Kelly, he thought, and Ryan. And Clarky too. Clarky went to all the games. I know them, he said. Maggie turned towards him. Know who? The plane, he said. He kept looking at the screen. A few from work. We'd said we'd go. He hadn't actually explained to them why he'd pulled out. Something's come up, he said. And when Ryan asked, was it to do with home, he'd said, yeah, that, that kind of thing. They'd nodded then and let the matter drop. Though later, Clarkie'd asked him if everything was all right. Fine, fine, he said. And Clarkie slapped him on the back and said, should they all be going to the finals when Ireland won? And that already he'd been checking out the prices. Yeah, definitely, Paul had said. Put me down for that, for sure. An aeronautical engineer was on screen, talking about struts and rivets and how much fuel a jet this size would carry as the newsreader listened gravely. The wardrobe beside the TV was slightly open. Paul could see inside a sliver of the green silk dress Maggie'd brought to wear to dinner later, the dress he'd so admired when he'd first met her. It hung there in the wooden darkness, an emerald ghost. This had been her idea, 
a night together in this city. Paris, she'd whispered, after they'd done it for the first time in his car. Wouldn't it be great if we could go to Paris? He tossed the remote back onto the bed and tightened the cord on his bathrobe. He was aware of her sitting beside him. She'd scooched across the bed to where he was sitting. That's terrible, she said, and she put her arm around him. He could smell the drink off her breath. Oh, Paul, she said, nuzzling his cheek. I'm so sorry. Her arm felt meaty on his shoulders. Was she drunk, he wondered? She couldn't be. They'd only ordered the one bottle and hadn't even finished it. She leaned in. The heat of her, the weight, surprised him. We need some air in here, he said, shrugging her arm away. He stood up. The room was not much wider than the bed. In three strides, he was at the window. He turned the handle and tried to push the window outwards, but it would only open a few inches. He pulled it shut and yanked at it again, harder this time, but still it would not budge. Just leave it, Paul, Maggie said. He tried it again, managing this time to prise the window open a little further. The street was narrow, quiet, a side street really, though he could hear not far away the sounds of cars and horns. He pressed his face into the gap and tried to breathe deeply. Do I know any of them? She said. He half turned back into the room. She had the sheets put up around her, almost to her chin. Paul? Why was she asking him these questions? You might have met them once, he said. She had, actually. This is Maggie, he'd said, over the laughter and the chink of glasses in their Friday evening haunt. She works with me. Kelly had just stared at him. Ryan had started making those big oh-ho eyes. And then Clarkie smirked and put his arm around her. God break your cross, love, he'd said, flirting with her the way he did with every woman he met, even though he'd never go offside, never. But so what if she'd met them? What did it matter? He turned away. Across the street, a shop was selling cheap T-shirts piled in mounds in the front window. And on the corner, there was a graffiti-covered wooden door with an outside table and two chairs beneath the sign saying, Café, Bar, Tabac. Oh, those guys, said Maggie. He heard her lift the wine glass, take a sip. They were cool. Christ, she was drunk. He spread his hands out either side of the sill. There was a big guy, Clark. Clarky, George Clark, he said. He could not look at her. Clarky, yeah, she said. Oh, he was lovely. Paul spun around. What entitlement had she to talk about these men? These were his friends, not hers. 
And now, unless they've been very lucky, they were probably, his mobile was in his coat pocket. He reached over to fish it out and powered it on. You have four missed calls. The phone bleeped twice then, an accusation. You have two new text messages. We love you so much, Jane's mobile. Please, please be okay. X, X, X. The two boys would be sitting at the kitchen table, still in their football gear, squabbling over sausages as the Saturday sport radio program murmured in the background. He imagined his wife suddenly telling them to be quiet, please, quiet for heaven's sake, as the news from Heathrow started coming in, biting her lip as she checked the printout on the fridge. He put the phone down. There was a champagne glass on the bedside locker, half full, although the bubbles had disappeared. He raised the glass briefly to his lips. It tasted sweet and flat. Those poor guys, Maggie was saying. She had her hands clasped round her knees, which she'd drawn up to her chest. The bed creaked as she rocked back and forth. Those poor, poor guys. The way she dragged out the word guys in that mid-Atlantic drawl of hers, which made no sense since she was not American. She'd never even been to America so far as he knew. I mean, to think that they're just gone, she said. And as she spoke, she began to weep. He stood looking at her, his hands on his hips. His bathrobe had started working itself loose again. He yanked it tight. I don't believe this, he said. I know, said Maggie. She clutched the bedsheet, a small white bunch in her fist. Isn't it just so? Can we just stop talking, please? He said. He felt it rising inside him, a rolling wave of rage, and he couldn't stop it. He didn't want to stop it. What do you mean, said Maggie. Her smudged mascara made her look like she'd been punched in both eyes, hard. Paul? Just never mind, he said. On the TV, a woman was speaking in an almost whisper about death and families. He could barely hear her. Bereavement counsellor, the caption said. Jesus, Paul, said Maggie. She heaved herself up off the bed and waddled across the room. At the bathroom door, she stopped, her hand on the handle, and looked back at him. You're such a, such a... <sighs> he slumped back on the bed as the bathroom door slammed. Briefly, he closed his eyes. When he opened them, the light in the street had faded further, the room now almost in gloom. He reached over to flick one of the switches. The bed, the chair, the room were all suddenly soaked in the overhead lamp's yellow glare. He squatted at the minibar, which was empty. From inside the bathroom, he could hear water running, 
as well as the sound of angry, breathless sobs. He dressed quickly. Back soon, he muttered towards the bathroom as he left. In the hotel lobby, a TV was showing the press conference. The two football associations were postponing the match as a mark of respect for the dead. The receptionist grimaced perfunctorily at him as he went through the entrance and out onto the street. Pavements were empty. He turned left and crossed over, heading for the tobacco. At the counter, the Algerian assistant motioned to the seats outside when Paul asked for a café au lait. He sat in one of the spindly metal chairs. It was colder than he had expected. The Algerian brought the coffee and the bill, three euro fifty cent. Paul handed him five euro and waved away a change. The Algerian nodded and disappeared. Paul placed his mobile on the table and poured sugar from the sachet into the cup. Her fault. This was all Maggie's fault. Any moment now she'd call him, but he would not answer. She'd leave a message demanding to know where he was and what did he think he was doing, walking out of the hotel room and leaving her like that. Later, much later, he would explain the shock, he'd say. He'd mention his dead companions, recite their names. He'd tell her how he'd needed space. Still did, in fact. He'd come up with something. A goal in the last minute, something. He sipped his coffee. Already it had cooled. A street lamp brightened beside him. Then another and another. His phone began to pulse, vibrating on the table as it sang out its tinny tune. He leaned forward to see the caller's name flashing on the screen. Home, it blinked again and again. Home, home, home. My name is Donal Maloney and this is an extract from a story called The Dream of Reason. As daylight bled through the canopy, my thoughts turned to survival. I brushed off the insects and the spiders and went in search of something to eat. Over the course of the morning I encountered frogs, snakes, lizards and parrots. I crossed streams with fish and big turtles. On one occasion something that looked very much like a partridge walked past me. I knew enough not to eat raw flesh, even if it came in the form of juicy, slow-moving fowl. But unfamiliar plants were risky too. I wandered around, investigating everything that grew, relying on instinctive judgments about what looked and smelled safe. After a few hours, I found some oniony herbs beneath a stand of giant palm trees. Later, I climbed a tree to get at some orange-colored fruit which tasted like plum. At dusk, I came across gritty yellow berries growing on a vine. For days, all I did was walk and forage. Then I discovered a tuber that looked like the cassava I'd seen in the markets in Guayaquil. It was incredibly bitter, but I ate it anyway, 
and for the first time in days I had a full stomach. A few hours later, I got wrenching stomach cramps, followed by violent diarrhea. I was in this state, plagued by stomach cramps, diarrhea and mosquitoes, when I found the river, a big river, presumably the coca or the napo. There is traffic on rivers. That was what was so significant. But as I explained at the beginning, I can't reach the river. For days I've tried, and I've tried to cross the swamps. I've been getting weaker and thinner. The diarrhea is wasting me away, but I can't reach the river. It's night again and it's raining. Slumping against a tree, I rest my arms on my knees and bury my head in my arms. On the air, there's a faint smell of cinnamon. The rainfall sputters out and the sky brightens. A powerful sun rises and dries my hair on the shoulders of my shirt. I walk close to the river until a large stream blocks my way. It's too deep to cross, so I walk upstream. After a mile or so, the water narrows at a bend, and a string of flat rocks serve as stepping stones. Climbing the bank on the other side, I notice a clearing in the distance. As I approach, I see that it's covered in a thick haze. I come to a chain-link fence, much higher than any fence I've ever seen. Beyond it, there is a fairway. Yes, a fairway, leading up to a green with a little orange flag in it. And there's a tea box, and, undulating gently, peeping out through the mist at intervals, there are further holes, all laid out and numbered. A golf course, then, with open, well-tended fairways, great lengths of treeless space, and everywhere I look, the rays of the equatorial sun are beating down on the short grass and raising up walls of vapour. A few centimetres behind the chain links, there is a fine wire mesh. It looks just like an insect screen, but on a massive scale. The fence and the screen behind it are both as tall as the trees and seem to stretch all the way around the course. I stumble along the perimeter, looking for an opening. Eventually, I come to a door in the fence. There is no lock. I just reach in, slide the bolt, and push the door open. The door bumps against a second door in the insect screen and knocks that open. As I step across the threshold, there's a rustling in the undergrowth at my back. I turn to see an iguana waddling furiously after me. Quickly, I shut the two doors in its resolute face. I stride out into the middle of the course. There is no sign of other people. In the openness of the space, I feel a hint of a breeze. The strips of rough separating the fairways are dotted here and there with a few low shrubs, and the clear views are intoxicating. I sit down and observe the vapour rise up off the grass. Up above, the sky looks enormous. Fiction at the Friary and on campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by JP Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.